So I'd like to say to anyone that is neurodivergent, you are good, you are okay. There's loads you can do and oftentimes there are things that this world needs and we mustn't be shy to be who we are. story just really took my fancy because it was the thought that this young woman walked the same paths that I walk and swam in the same sea that I swam in. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Nicola Matthews, author of Kitty Canham, Love, Loss, and Necessary Lives. But before I knew it, I'd written five chapters, and the life of Kitty sort of came pouring in and, and taking up my imagination. Nicola Matthews lives on the ragged coastline of North Essex. In 1720, Kitty Canham was born nearby. It was their shared landscape and Kitty's fascinating story that inspired Matthews to write her debut novel. Matthews comes from a family of actors and didn't discover her love of writing until her mid-40s. Strangely, it was in going to art school to study sculpture that she discovered she could write. She also has a love of poetry, which she's written on and off through her life. Today, I'll be talking with Matthews about her debut novel, Kitty Canham, Love, Loss, and Necessary Lies. Well, I'm curious to know, is Catherine Canham a well-known historical figure throughout all of England, or is she more of a regional figure? Well, Catherine, or as we call her, Kitty, is actually very much a regional figure. She's a local folktale, really, in a way, um, told very much at the, at the local pubs. She was born in Thorpeless Socombe, which is my neighbouring village, in 1720, and was a yeoman farmer's daughter. After that, she all we know is that at 25, she married. She married a local vicar, and then she disappeared. Two years later, a young man was apprehended off the Essex coast by customs officials assumed to be carrying contraband. It turned out that he was actually travelling with Kitty's body. So that's basically the story that we have, and it's told very much around these parts, especially in the Bell Inn, where she is said to haunt. So, yeah, that's Kitty, and it's very much a local story, as I say. So you grew up hearing stories about her. Were you immediately curious, or, or how did your fascination kind of develop? Well, I think my fascination developed because we 
had lived in the area here when I was younger. Then we moved away and came back. And we now live overlooking the backwaters, which is just a beautiful area of um, sea inlet, really. And that's when I first started hearing it with adult ears, as it were. And I think the story just really took my fancy because it was the thought that this young woman walked the same paths that I walk and swam in the same sea that I swam in. And just hearing the mystery of it, really, what happened to her? What was it that caused her not to get married until she was 25 in in that era, in the mid-18th century? That was quite late. And I wanted to really try and give flesh to her bones, as it were, and, and try and imagine what what her story was. Well, I want to ask more about that, what her story really was. But before we do, I am curious to know more about this this lore. You say there are a lot of ghost stories around her. So where did these ghost stories come from? Uh, are they rooted in, in anything realistic or is it just just something that grew out of, you know, fairy tale? It is realistic. Uh, Kitty did live and she was Yoma's daughter. All those things I've just told you were true. She actually um, was found to be in the company when she came back from being abroad. Um, she was in the company of Lord John Delmany, who is an ancestor of the Delmany family of the Rosebury estate just north of Edinburgh. And um, this is all fact. It's written on their website. So that's, yeah, that's the fact. The fiction, I've sort of added around that, really. But the ghost stories are very much a part of what happened um, just by folks sitting around and telling stories. They had a portrait of Kitty on the walls of the Bell Inn up in Thorpe. And there was a fire in 1991, I think it was when the fire had been put out and everything and very a lot of it had been destroyed the roof had gone and everything but the portrait remained untouched and i think that just added to the sort of sense of mystery and uh yes of intrigue really for the story so um yeah that's how it's been told and her ending has been told in various forms some say that she was found in a barrel of rum, which is something I rather doubt, but that's one of the stories. Another says that she threw herself from the church tower, which doesn't really fit in with the history of it. We know that she was found in the company of this young man. Well, her body was, at any rate. So, Well, it's, it certainly sounds like a story that's ripe for a storyteller to, to recreate what were your goals in in giving her new life through this novel? Well, I think for me, in writing Kitty, it was to bring this story to life, obviously, to put flesh on her bones. But I think more than that, I saw a young woman who was in an era where the conventions of the age would have been very much pitted against her. If she wanted to go take her own course that would have been a very difficult thing. And in a way, it brought out a theme in the book, which is a bit of an unusual theme, the sort of the theme of inevitability. I think for many of us, we are told that you can do anything. You can, uh, with the right education, with the right um, attitude, you can make your own way. 
But the reality is for many of us, myself, including Kitty, there is a sense that that the conventions with which we are surrounded, both um, in our society, in our families, can be such strong currents going against the way that we want to go. And I kind of wanted to give voice to that, really, voice to that struggle that so many of us, all of us, probably face in one way or another in trying to make our own path in life. So although she lived 300 years before me, um, there was this sense, really, that we that I was wanting to express something of my own struggle through her and I think I think that I achieved that it seems um that seems to resonate with people and also the strength that you need I mean she's much feistier than I which I'm pleased about I suppose in some ways I've written within her some of what I would have liked to have been if I'd been stronger um so I think that that was my aim, really, and and to really, I suppose, to flesh out the, the the real sense of what it would have been like for her living in that period, on a farm, on this land, uh, in in which I live. I wonder then, how would you categorize her life? Was it a tragedy, or do you think she she reached some of those? Um, you know, got past some of those inevitabilities. Um, What do you think of her life looking back on it? Well, I think she definitely did reach some of that. She certainly found love. She found love and a companionship that she looked for, longed for, but it wasn't without cost. I think that's the reality of it. As we all know, most of the things we reach for leave behind us a trail of things that have have cost us dear and i think that's very true of kitty i think she she made her way very often but very often she would be f- forging forward only to sort of come back again uh, as happens so often but in the end she does find love and so i think there is a a beauty and there always is for me a beauty within tragedy she faces many tragedies faces her own at the end but there can be a beauty in darkness I feel and in sorrow that we often don't think about or we don't let ourselves think about we want to think about the good side and there was good there there are some there are some great fun bits for Kitty she goes to London um, she mixes there with artists and musicians and there are some fun bits there are some funny bits so I suppose, in a way, for me, Kitty's life really expresses all our lives in some way. There are highs, there are lows, but for me, there is beauty throughout, whether it's dark or whether it's light, whether it's good or whether it's evil. Beauty is always to be found somewhere if you look hard enough. Certainly. I want to switch directions here a little bit. So, you know, we've talked about Kitty and, and her life. I'm curious about where you live, where she lived, um, and what the culture is like there, what the lifestyle is like. I am an American. I'm speaking to you from the United States. You are in England. Um, So tell me a little bit about the setting and how you recreated that or brought that setting to life. The setting in which I live, which is the same landscape that Kitty lived in, was very key to the writing process for me and for the beginning of wanting to write her story at all, really. 
because it's a very ragged inlet on which I live, where there are little inlets within the inlet that go all the way around. And it's a place of trade. There was all, for many, many years, hundreds of years, there's been trade between here and London of of wheat and crops and all kinds of things, sheep farming, all this sort of thing. And I think there's a sense of the rhythm of the seasons here because we live on the water's edge. The tide goes out and the mudflats are exposed and the birds come in and they seek out their prey and there's a quiet at that time. And then the tides come in and with it, a new sort of noise, a new sort of sense. And I think that that rhythm that we all live with around here, even now, there's the rhythm of the um, the folks that come on holiday. They all come in at the beginning of the summer and they kind of flow out as the winter comes on. And the winters here are beautiful because you get the mists rolling over the over the the waters onto the land. It's also the kind of landscape that can really reflect your own moods. When the sun's shining, you're lifted. There can, it can be quite grey. This is England, wet, all of those things. And I think for Kitty, oftentimes her moods are reflected within the landscape and the weather. Um, I think we live in that kind of way, really. We are our own community in terms of of sort of our own society, we're on a peninsula. So I suppose in a way, we are we have that kind of mentality. It can be quite a small mentality, but it can also be a real place of support. Our little town, the, our local seaside town, Frinton-on-Sea, is a lovely little community which supports one another, looks out for one another. That sense of, of being in a small area is very much a part of who we are. And there's a strong religious base here. There's a number of churches that all work together. Um, I don't know if that was so in Kitty's time, although, of course, the church was much stronger in those days generally. So perhaps what we have here now reflects what Kitty would have had in her day. We're quite reserved, as so many people are in over in Great Britain. Um, yes, I think that's... That's how this environment kind of really speaks into the novel. Well, it sounds lovely and, and sounds like a, a great setting uh, for any story. Um, is it advantageous just being a writer, being a part of that community, being a part of that landscape? I think it is. I think as a writer, having that sense of space around you um, and the kind of romantic space, to be honest, is really good for the imagination. It certainly is good for my imagination. It gives me, I don't know what it is really, I don't know what that is. I suppose a meditative space, contemplative space, in which ideas can start to form. So I think it is, yes, it, I think it very much is good for the creative nature of writing. And can you talk a little bit about your own background as as a writer? What brought you to this point to be a fiction novelist? Um, you know, how far have you come? Was it always something you wanted to do? Um, can you just bring us through how, how you got to this point? Well, writing for me was not on the cards when I was young. 
I was, I didn't do school very well. I left school with no qualifications and went straight into the theatre because my family were all actors. My father, Jack Watling, was in the black and white movies, that sort of thing. And I had three elder siblings who were all actors. And so I went into the acting profession um, I just because that's what I did. But writing, I didn't actually discover it until I was in my 40s when I had a dyslexia test and discovered that I had dyslexia. I, and I know there are many people like myself who have been undiagnosed for many, many years. And it's a wonderful thing when you find something like that because you realise that all those things that you've sort of wanted to do, you've, you've cut out of your life because you felt it couldn't possibly be for me. Well, thankfully, I did my degree. I did it in fine art. I, I majored on sculpture. But it was in writing my dissertation that I discovered a love for writing and discovered that I could write. It rather amused me because my tutor at the time said he didn't agree with my premise at all. He thought it was ridiculous. But he said the writing was very good. So that encouraged me on. Um, I have always written a bit. I've always written poetry. And I continue to do so to this day. Um, it, it's just something that I love to do, that trying to evoke something out of a very few words and out of a lyricism is something that very much pleases me. So that's how I first started writing. But really, I would say that it wasn't until the first lockdown of COVID that I was kept in one place to really begin writing in any serious way. And that's when I started the novel. I suppose prior to that, I had written um, community theatre, which I'd also produced and put on. I'd written three different plays, which worked very well, and I enjoyed that. But that still felt very different to sitting down and writing a novel. And I would say, amusingly, really, when I sat down to write the story of Kitty's life, I only did that. I sat down to write a story. I didn't know what it was going to be, whether it was going to be a short story or just something I wrote for the fun of it. But before I knew it, I'd written five chapters and the life of Kitty sort of came pouring in and, and taking up my imagination. And from then on, I just continued writing, basically, until a novel was written. And so I really surprised myself as well as my family and my friends. And I'm very pleased that I did it because it's something that I wish I'd discovered many years ago. What do you think it was about your diagnosis that helped you overcome a barrier? And for anyone who's listening who maybe has some kind of neurodivergency and is reluctant to write or um, needs some kind of additional supports, what, what would your advice be to them? Well, firstly... I have to mention that I was diagnosed dyslexic and then 10 years later diagnosed with ADD, ADHD. And both of those diagnoses made such a difference to my life. I think the problem is that when you are neurodivergent, it's very easy to carry a sense of shame is perhaps too strong a word or perhaps not, that one has not achieved has not been able to do the things that other people seem to be able to do. Um, I could barely hold down a job, it seemed, for one reason or another. 
So these diagnoses, for me, were actually a very great blessing. It was recognizing that I was neurodivergent, but able to work with that. And not only work with that, find the strengths in it. I believe that dyslexics and ADHDers are often people that are incredibly creative. And it's one thing that I have been all my life is creative. You give me something, I can make something else out of it. You give me a couple of words, I can write you a story. Uh, we just have this incredible creativity and an ability to think outside the box. Great problem solving um, abilities. And in a way, it's interesting because it really plays into my writing. I like to give myself a problem and then to solve it. And that's how I started Kitty with the question, she didn't marry till she was 25. Why not? That was the problem I gave myself that I had to solve. And in solving that problem, her story came into being. So I think for me, these diagnoses made such a difference to my life. They began to set me on a path of actually feeling good about myself, good enough to feel that I could write a novel that would be worth other people reading. And in many ways, it's been such a blessing. Just having done that at the age of 65 feels like I've sort of completed a circle. Like I've said, yes, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. So I'd like to say to anyone that is neurodivergent, you are good, you are okay. There's loads you can do, and oftentimes there are things that this world needs, and we mustn't be shy to be who we are and see where that takes us. That's just wonderful to hear you say that, and it's so well said. Thank you. I want to ask you about the publishing process. Um, one thing most authors have to learn through trial and error, through just, just doing it, is that it's one thing to write a novel, but then to get it out in the world is a completely other thing. So what has that been like for you to edit the novel, to find um, a designer, to find a publisher and all those sorts of things? Oh, my goodness, Colin, that is the most shocking part of this whole journey in writing a novel. Um, I was very naive. I didn't realize how much marketing involved it's 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 hard going, but you can learn it. I've been learning it and finding my way through. With my own particular novel, I did employ an editor because of my writing skills. Obviously, my punctuation really needed some help, and she was incredibly helpful. So that that was well worth doing. And then I did send it off to a number of publishers, literary agents, and had no response. So in the end, I decided to self-publish. And actually, I found that a really helpful part of the process in self-publishing. I found um, readers to read it before I even published, which gave me a sense of what was working, what wasn't working, if there were any little glitches. So I was able to kind of iron that out. So that was very helpful. And then the self-publishing process itself, getting it uploaded, I am a dinosaur in terms of technology, so I got some help with that as well. I think the reality is when you want to self-publish, get the help you need. It's worth it. I think there's a lot to be said for it because you have control. Um, you can get it out to whoever you can get it out to. I, I employed a publicist, so spent quite a bit of money. But I think all those things 
have enabled me to learn a lot. I am going to have a second round of writing to um, literary agents because I feel that Kitty has found a niche. She's getting good reviews. People are enjoying reading the book. Um, so I feel that, that she's got legs and I want to make sure she's got the best legs she can have. So I'm going to write round again and see if I can get someone to take her on. But if not, I shall just continue with her because she's, um, I, listen to me calling it her, um, because the book, I believe, is worth it. And I'm going to keep going with it. So, yeah. And what have you learned that, well, I guess, first thing I'd like to know is, are you working on something new, another novel, or maybe some other creative endeavor? And with that said, what would you do differently the second time around? Well, I am working around some thoughts of a new novel. There is a character in Kitty's life, one of her best friends. She ends up in a relationship that is evidently abusive. And then Kitty and she go separate ways. And towards the very end of the book, we simply hear that she is lying in the graveyard, having given up hope. That's all we know. And it's as if this character is still calling me to write her story now. Not Well, it'll probably be her story from the point of view of her son, her young son that she left when she died. Him coming back and finding out what happened to his mother with many other things going on as well. So that's, that's what I'm looking at at the moment. The great challenge will be is that my protagonist would be a male. So writing from a male's point of view is going to be a very interesting thing to work out. But as I have said, I love a challenge and I, I really rise to a challenge. So I think that's probably the direction I'm going to take. And in future years, um, I would like to look at my own background, my childhood. It was a very bohemian household. You would wake up in the morning and there'd be someone lying on a sofa you've never seen before or who's eating breakfast with us today. It was it was parties. My mother was this fantastic hostess. And there was something rather sort of strange about that, really, for a child of my personality. And that's something I'm very interested to go into as well. But I think probably I will stick with Sarah and her journey first, and then maybe look at my own childhood at a later stage. Well, so as someone who has delved into the life of Kitty Canham, um, and <laughs> you seem to know her so well, has the ghost of Kitty offered you any visits? Have you come across her at the Bell Inn or anything like that? I can't say I've come across Kitty at all. I have to be honest. Although I was brought up in a 16th century house and we had many bumps in the night and I really did think they were ghosts when I was a child. I'm not so sure these days. Although I will tell you that there are people at the Bell Inn, the cleaners, that don't go in on their own when it's dark they like to always be with a friend because they do hear bumps and things. But as far as I'm concerned, no, Kitty is dead and gone. 
Well, Nicola, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, congratulations on your novel and, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been great being with you. Well, uh, Nicola, it's been a pressure. A, I'll say that again. Is your name pronounced Nicola? Nicola. Nicola. Okay. And then I feel like I was getting can. Is it can? Canum. Canum? Okay. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter.